Hello, welcome to the World Affairs Podcast. This is uh, Jeffrey Gordon on the New Books Network. And today we're talking about Hotels and Highways, the Construction of Modernization Theory in Cold War Turkey with the author Begum Madalit of Cornell University. Um, uh, this book is about the the uh, relationship between social U- U.S. social scientists and U.S. foreign policy in the 1950s. It's about why uh, Turkey has had a special place in the image of U.S. comparative politics scholars and uh, development theorists. Um, and it's a book about how um, certain countries are both uh, laboratories as well as models for thinking about development and about the tensions involved in the production of knowledge about international development. Um, so, uh, Begum, what... Uh, what does modernization theory mean for you in this project? Um, and how would you define modernization theory? Right. Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, a good question to, to begin with. Um, modernization theory, I think, sort of generically, when we think about it, uh, we know that it was a theory that was quite popular, um, not only in uh, social scientific circles, but also U.S. policy circles in the 1950s and 60s. And it was um, mostly in, interested in explaining um, economic and, and political development in the global periphery. Um, practitioners often insisted on a contrast between tradition and, and modernity, and oftentimes assumed a singular uh, and evolutionary path towards development uh, with certain uh, important turning points like the rise of mass media, urbanization, increasing rates of literacy uh, in, and, and as well as uh, democratization in some uh, forms, versions, and that, that these things would, would come in a bundle. Um, but while modernization theorists were um, interested in explaining uh, economic growth and political change in, in broad terms, uh, they were also trying to uh, explain cultural, social, and psychological transformations at the level of subjects and so they would emphasize um, uh, the the need to the necessity to measure and explain uh, psyches and mindsets uh, certain attitudes and and behaviors that could be uh, seen as models so in the book um, i'm I'm especially interested in the uh, types of um, attitudes and subjectivities uh, such as empathy mobility and hospitality uh, that were uh, seen as essential to as central features of a, of a modern subjectivity, and, and the ways in which these were um, to be cultivated and in, enacted in a series of sort of uh, material sites, and that's that's right. how. It, yeah. Sorry. And and um, the projects that you talk about and and the social scientific um, methods that you discuss are um, ways of of inculcating these modern forms of subjectivity, these modern ways of being um, in uh, Turkish people um, during the 1950s and 1960s. Um, why was Turkey a prototypical case as well as um, uh, an important laboratory for uh, modernization theory during this period? Um, why did Turkey occupy such an important place in the position of modernization theorists? That, that's a that's a great, great question. Um, uh, in some ways, of course, um, we know that um, uh, a theory like modernization theory that, that 
it was in, in many ways developed and, and enacted in, in uh, certain institutions in the U.S. So we know that MIT's Center for International Studies uh, was an important site. Uh, the SSRC's uh, Committee on Comparative Politics, uh, historians of modernization theories, uh, theory have, have written about these sites. But uh, taking my cue from uh, recent histories, I began to see that we need to also look at the types of local practices and regional ideologies and transnational encounters um, that were also quite important in, in the production and enactment of, of theories and projects of, of modernization and development. And Tur- Turkey emerged as an, as an important site of uh, those types, by, by no means the only one, but never, nevertheless an important site of uh, theorizing and, and experimentation for American researchers uh, for a few reasons. One was that um, this was a time when modernization theorists were really quite fearful about the effects that uh, you know, mass participation might have uh, especially as they contemplated the uh, potential trajectories for uh, for those in the uh, vastly decolonizing uh, uh, global south, and they were quite suspicious of, of people's ability to to rule themselves. And uh, Turkey was a place that had a uh, legacy of top-down reforms and uh, elite-led development, uh, which made it an, an important case study and, and model. So it was a question of sort of elite management in. in development and, and democratization, so it was important for that. Uh, but it was also, I would say, um, an interesting model because uh, of its sort of staunch uh, anti-communism, its status as a, as a reliable member of the Western Bloc uh, between 1947 and 1960, and also as a, at a moment when uh, U.S. foreign aid was becoming linked with the encouragement of, of development. Uh, Turkey as a recipient of really important uh, packages of Truman Doctrine, Marshall Plan, Point Four Doctrine, uh, uh, the Point Four Program uh, aids, that it, it also began uh, playing a role as a, as a laboratory of, of development in those senses as well. Right. And um, if you go back and read uh, some of the important works of, of modernization theory from the 50s and 60s, uh, Ataturk is a really important figure or a case study uh, uh, that a lot of these different authors use, um, a book that I know well from my own research on, on so-called guardian democracies, uh, Samuel Huntington's Political Order and Changing Societies, um, in his uh, chapter on the role of the military in modernizing societies. He has an entire section that just um, repeats, you know, Ataturkist or, or Kamalist um, ideology pretty much word for word and in, in, in praising him as a model of, of what top-down military-led reform could do for developing societies. And uh, Daniel Lerner, who you talk about, is another person who has uh, important articles from that time period about the the role that the Turkish military played as a, um, as a vanguard of modernization in, in their society. And so Turkey has this history of elite-led reform and also this geographic position where um, it's on the southern flank of the Soviet Union. Union. It's uh, it 
during the 1950s, it becomes a a member of NATO and a recipient of Marshall Plan aid because of its geographic uh, proximity to Europe and uh, and as well as because of this uh, cultural project of self-Europeanization that um, uh, Republican elites had had, uh, been implementing since at least the 1920s. uh, Turkey becomes this really important model, and and this mindset, this approach to understanding Turkey is still very much in place today, of, of viewed as uh, a secular oasis and an otherwise, you know, backward and scary Middle Eastern region from the perspective of Westerners. I get that a lot when I when I talk to students, for example. Uh, that's kind of what they learn from the media's portrayal of Turkey's position in the Middle East. Um, uh, as you point out later on with the the Turkish model more recently up until maybe the Gezi Park protests in 2013, how it was considered a model for, for the rest of the region. Um, so, uh, so you've uh, referred to how um, your approach to uh, uh, studying modernization theory is different from some of the approaches of historians like Nils Gilman or, or David Eckblad. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more about how your approach is, is different uh, and contributes to the historiography of modernization theory and, and, and ideologies of development uh, that have emerged in recent years? Um, uh, I think uh, sort of you know, really very uh, valuable and important work has been done, especially by uh, intellectual historians in, in uh, telling the story about the emergence of modernization theory, um, recovering the history of the particular types of uh, academic and, and government institutions that were that were central to its its crafting and its uh, um, propagation across the, the world. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, more, more recent work here. I can uh, I can cite uh, Nathan Satino's really important work on um, envisioning the Arab future, um, that uh, you know really situates uh, developmental theories and projects in their in their uh, sort of local contexts, uh, the the important ways in which again uh, sort of regional regional conflicts, but also regional uh, ideas. And, and really ultimately transnational encounters between um, uh, American and Turkish social scientists, um, uh, American or, or other and, and other uh, local experts and policymakers played. I think this, that's sort of the uh, uh, the more recent latter uh, sort of uh, literatures that, that I was um, taking my, my cue from and, and trying to be in, in conversation with. Yeah, um, uh I feel like if I would have known that the history of international development was a thing, maybe I would have gone into a history program because I find this all very interesting, uh, interesting work. And I'm really interested in these ideologies of uh, that, uh, the ideological lens through which U.S. policymakers and social scientists approach studying the rest of the world. Um, I think that uh, um, your approach is uh, the approach that you're taking here of, of involving um, local actors and the interactions between local actors and and and, and um, American uh, actors in the shaping of modernization theory and modernization projects is a, a really important contribution of this book. Uh, and you use the word uh, laboratorization uh, a lot to um, describe this uh, um, 
way that U.S. policymakers uh, thought of Turkey as not only uh, a model for other countries, particularly in the Middle East, to emulate, but also as um, an object of, of of transformation and of reform. Um, what do you mean by laboratorization? Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, I'm, I'm really sort of taking my cue from uh, scholars of um, science and technology studies and uh, SDS-inspired uh, histories of the, of the social scientific practices uh, as well. And one, one thing that, was, that, that led me to sort of adopt that, that language was precisely the fact that um, because many of them uh, were, uh, had also affinities for uh, broadly sort of behavioralist uh, uh, approaches to the study of modernization, uh, the practitioners themselves used a, a language uh, that was that was quite uh, scientifically in, in inflected, and a language of experimentation, a language of uh, sort of crafting uh, general, all uh, all explaining, all explanatory uh, theorems and, and models. Uh, and so, um, following those threads, then uh, what was really striking was uh, sort of being able to. Uh, think about social scientific investigations themselves, social scientific methodologies like survey research, for instance, themselves as, as uh, sort of uh, efforts not merely to uh, measure uh, or, or describe the phenomena under investigation, but uh, actually having an, uh, an effect of, of producing or, or an, at least an effort to enact uh, certain types of uh, political outcomes and, and also certain types of subjectivities and attitudes and so uh, laboratorization in the in the sense of uh, um, both Turkey more broadly uh, as a site of experimentation for researchers um, interested in coming up with uh, theories and, and models of, of modernity uh, but also uh, Turkey with, uh, with within itself holding different types of different sites of laboratorization so uh, survey research a uh, highway project across the country, hotels themselves as, as sites that were supposed to sort of encourage, cultivate uh, particular types of, of again, um, particular components of a, of a modern subjectivity. So that's, that's sort of broadly what I, what I mean by, uh, by that language. Right. And um, it's, it's uh, that language really stood out to me because um, in my graduate training in political science, I've, uh, uh, learned a lot about how um, for political science methodologists and for publications in the top journals in in the field, um, uh, experiments are still the gold standard of causal inference and the research designs are supposed to um, um, come as close to that ideal as possible. And uh, in political science in the last decade or so, there's been a big trend towards the use of of field experiments or laboratory in the field experiments and comparative politics to try to um, study how to improve political accountability and political responsiveness um, through this process that you just a process similar to what you describe of, of not only trying to um, 
go out and collect data and measure and describe, but also to engender the very phenomena that political scientists supposedly seek to examine, being something like democratic accountability in the um, in the very particular way that political scientists, empirical political scientists, think about democracy and accountability. Um, I thought that. Uh, laboratorization was a really interesting word to use because I feel like maybe in another couple of decades, somebody could write a similar book about um, the laboratorization of Uganda or Liberia, which have been countries where um, a lot of uh, articles published in American Political Science Review or American Journal of Political Science have done experiments um, around everything from um, the mobilization of ethnic politics to uh, studying clientelism and corruption. Um, I think that that uh, that that way of approaching uh, the world and the and the unselfconsciousness about the role of power relations and knowledge creation uh, are still features of political science today. And, and so I think this uh, makes your book very relevant to um, um, contemporary political science methodology. Um, but I want to come back to that uh, a little later on. Um, uh, so you talk about one of the figures that you talk about in this book is is Dankwart Rusto. Uh, he was um, a German emigre uh, political scientist uh, who came to serve as uh, what you describe as a dragoman or translator for U.S. social scientists interested in Turkey. Um, how did he come to uh, occupy this position as a an, uh, a mediator between U.S. social science and 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 Turkey and Turkish uh, social scientists. Uh, that's a, that's a great question, and I think the answer would, would probably have to rest in part on, on just the trajectory of his of his biography, his, his life story. Um, Rasta was was born in Germany, but moved to Istanbul uh, when he was fourteen uh, to follow his his father, who was an uh, economics professor, and who had uh, fled Germany and started teaching at Istanbul University. And so uh, he, uh, Dankwar Rasta, spent the World War II years in Istanbul, auditing classes, uh, learning uh, learning Turkish uh, and, and, and other languages. And it was after that that he moved to the U.S. Uh, he got a Ph.D. in political science at Yale and, and eventually started uh, teaching at, at Princeton. And from the beginning of his career, he was uh, very much this, this central and mediating figure who was very... Uh, he was, you know, uh, a central figure in, in the SSRC's Committee on Comparative Politics. Uh, he was involved with a number of uh, committees on, on Middle East studies. Uh, he was also a, a sort of a figure at the Council on Foreign Relations and all sorts of conversations between um, uh, policymakers and, and uh, social scientists and at times diplomats, oil men. Uh, and so, uh, both from a sort of a academic and a, and a political really uh, perspective, he was very much um, involved with, with a number of conversations where, uh, where um, Turkey, because of the reasons that we mentioned earlier, was was very much on the table as a as a as a site of importance for these, um, um, you know, uh, declared uh, national security reasons. So, right, um, pretty much whenever. Uh, 
something happened in Turkey, uh, newspapers and organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations would turn to Rusto for commentary because he was seen as one of the the most prominent experts on on Turkey and and U.S. social science, uh, occupying that position at Princeton. Um, and um, uh, could you describe his his trajectory and his relationship with modernization theory over the course of his career, from the beginnings of of the construction of the institutional framework within which comparative political science research was uh, emerging, uh, with the Council on uh, comparative politics uh, in the early 1950s. Um, he was, he, uh, from the chapter, I gather that he was a pretty enthusiastic participant in these early um, um, meetings to kind of shape the research agenda for comparative politics in the, the post-war period. But over time, he became um, somewhat critical of the way that um, modernization theory was practiced and and developed and uh, somewhat disillusioned with um, um, political science. Uh, could you describe this trajectory? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, that makes him such an interesting and, and exciting figure for me uh, was the ways in which sort of he's very much present from, from the outset uh, in these efforts to uh, create, again, uh, to craft a new new theory that will be able to uh, explain and, and pose a, a model uh, of, of development uh, for, for countries across the global south. And so in that position, he's, um, uh, he's one of the f- uh, first people that uh, Gabriel Almond, uh, the, the famous political scientist, when he's uh, he takes on the uh, the leadership role in, in SSRC's new uh, initiative uh, to to create this new committee for comparative politics, uh, Rastal at the time is is doing uh, another research project in Turkey and is is very enthusiastic about this idea of uh, coming out with with new methods, new ways of of, of comparison that will uh, then uh, uh, have this ability to. Uh, uh, compare and contrast uh, political and economic uh, systems in, in different areas of the world. But uh, very quickly, uh, he became quite suspicious of and, and, and disillusioned with the, with the projects that, that they're engaging in. And so um, he's, he's uh, in, even as, as early as the uh, mid-1950s, uh, while... Um, working as a as a contributor to one of these famous uh, volumes, Politics of the Developing Areas, uh, co-edited by Gabriel Almond and, and James Coleman. Uh, he, he sends a, a private letter to, to Coleman, one of the editors, telling him that uh, although he was assigned to write this chapter on, uh, on political development across the, the Middle East, he's actually... Uh, ignorant about certain uh, details. He doesn't know about the situation of newspapers in Yemen. Uh, he, he's not comfortable creating a, a matrix for, for types of political systems. Everything is a bit uncertain. Uh, he doesn't necessarily uh, want to use even, uh, even uh, the, in, in some communications correspondences, he raises questions about the very fit phrases of development versus underdevelopment. He thinks there are certain patronizing qualities to this to these languages and what was really um, uh, interesting about what this this private correspondence um, um, revealed was 
but he wasn't even alone in in these types of skepticisms and, and uncertainties. So, um, you know, others others engaged in the project thought uh, that uh, the uh, authors hadn't worked together long enough. Uh, that that there was something to the point where uh, comparison is a is a dubious uh, uh, project, and so he's he's really sort of uh, and and his his criticism at first uh, sort of formulated in these more private uh, enclosed settings. Uh, by the end of the nineteen sixties, he becomes he joins uh, many others who who are you know altogether disillusioned with the modernization project, modernization theory project. And are much more vocal about about their criticisms of it, but just kind of um, being able to um, sketch this this trajectory of his uh, of his intellectual development, uh, and also noticing that uh, while while in private he was uh, he could be quite uh, sort of uh, doubtful of, of of certain trends, he nonetheless was continued to be. Uh, a central figure to the development of both modernization theory and this and this trope of of a Turkish model, right? So, uh, even though he could be skeptical, uh, he still upheld all sorts of uh, pathological features of of this Turkish model of modernization. Uh, he ended up, uh, you know, making uh, excuses for all sorts of military coups that would happen every every ten years in Turkey. Uh, he um, continued uh, publishing volumes that that insisted on on the separation between ostensibly modern Turks and, and quote unquote backwards Arabs. So, uh, you know, um, it's really really sort of fascinating to to look at him as as someone who who is is increasingly increasingly doubtful of the project he's involved in, but but is at the same time uh, really contributing uh, important important facets to that work. I think that that's a really interesting um, um, uh, aspect of 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 the portrait that you paint of him. This difference between the private skepticism and the public uh, participation in uh, some of the very same features that he was uh, at least somewhat critical of um, um, behind the scenes. Uh, what do you think explains this uh, difference between um, the private skepticism and the public? participation uh in some of these uh developments uh, i mean i think uh there could be uh several several uh reasons for that but i mean one of the one of the sort of pictures that we gleaned from uh, again uh, more more recent intellectual histories of the of the ways in which social sciences were were practiced during this period uh, Mark Soloway's work, for instance, which is mostly about these uh, uh, networks of patronage and, and funding, and the ways in which the social scientists uh, during this period felt, did feel a pressure to uh, present their work as, as objective, uh, and which I think entailed a, a necessity to sort of uh, sort of conceal or disavow some of the private uh, skepticisms uh, uh, that they might have about uh, the, the limitations of their work, about the limitations of their own knowledge. And uh, this, this pressure to, to present their work as, as, as being objective came, came from this need to uh, secure uh, funding from, uh, from foundations, uh, from the government. Uh, and so um, I think, you know, not, not to be too, too cynical about it, there is, there is something to be said, I think, for um, uh, continuing to... Um, 
project more confidence and and, and uh, certitude about about the work that they were doing. Uh, that might partly have been uh, a result of of uh, being uh, merged in these in these um, uh, networks of, of political influence and, and funding and, and other reasons. Right, these very strong uh, career incentives and. Um, you know, it, you don't have. He doesn't have to be a cynic to follow these sorts of incentives, even if he wants to. Uh, even if somebody like Resto or or a contemporary uh, uh, social scientist who is clear-eyed about the limitations of their methodologies and theories, but nonetheless wants to do some kind of good in the world and wants to at least kind of um, nudge the policy of the foreign policy in, in a positive direction they can still play along with this pathological set of rules that um encourages people to uh overstate their the the novelty and importance of their findings and to uh downplay some of the limitations of their of their methods and theories and to um um contribute to this uh um overconfidence systematic overconfidence in um in the uh ability of u.s foreign policy to bring about the sorts of objectives it wants to achieve in the world um uh, I think that that's uh, a really good point, and and these structural factors are, I I think, still in place today. Uh, the need to uh, inflate your findings in order to get funding or get promotions, and and to have influence uh, is something is is a very real um, pressure for political scientists. Um, uh, f- shifting our focus now to uh, your your chapter on survey research and uh, on the sociologist Daniel Lerner. Um, uh, how is Daniel Lerner's uh, understanding of modernization and understanding of social science different from Dinkwart Rustos? Who was Daniel Lerner, first of all? Uh, so, uh, so Lerner Lerner was a was a sociologist. Um, but uh, really, uh, even more so than than, than Rostow, I think he's, he's really primarily his work was in, in uh, psychological warfare studies, and so uh, very much shaped by uh, by this uh, by some of the sort of the Cold War uh, commitments. Uh, these these um, ideas about uh, again what's what is required what are the what are the uh, needs for uh, the national security state and uh, most importantly he is the author of uh, passing of traditional society uh, which uh, focuses less on on questions of, of broader sort of political developments uh, at the level of uh, institutions and whatnot that that Rostow was writing about. And Lerner is really interested in uh, sort of um, you know, the, the the ways in which uh, again uh, modern uh, behaviors are are are, are to be um, enacted at the level of, of individuals. And uh, the passing of traditional society itself is is interesting. It's it's commissioned by the Voice of America, uh, which is interested in in uh, gauging the effect that Soviet jamming. Uh, might have on their on their radio signals, so it's a very explicitly sort of ideological work, and um, inter- it's interesting also because um, of of sort of learners 
uh, seeming awareness and, and investment in survey methodology itself as as something that is able to occasion the the enactment of of, of modernity. And he's he's very famously sort of interested in this concept of of empathy, which he sometimes calls uh, psychic mobility, as something that is the the product of uh, the use of of uh, technologies, media technologies. Uh, but he's also uh, he also seems to think that uh, just the abil- the very ability to to respond to the surveys that are brought by these American social scientists. Uh, is is another way of sort of uh, measuring the capacity for for empathy on the part of these these modernizing subjects. So if a respondent is able to have opinions and formulate them in a way that is legible to the interviewer, uh, if they're they're open uh, to, to 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 taking these surveys, these are all uh, uh, things that are that get coded as as markers of, of empathy and modern modern subjectivity for him. But when you look at sort of the, the actual uh, qualitative responses uh, that are that are available uh, at the MIT, MIT archives, actually you, you see uh, a much much different different picture in, in terms of uh, respondents, um, sort of different reasons that they might give for not wanting to engage with the questionnaire, for being suspicious of the interviewer, and and, and whatnot. So. Uh, he he that book I think uh, is presents this sort of very interesting. Um, uh, uh, opportunity for for reflecting on the types of uh, again uh, methodological uh, assumptions and tools that were that, uh, employed by these different types of modernization here. Right, uh, you say that social scientific theories and attendant methodologies not only measure, encode, or describe, but also engender the phenomena they seek to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about um, that uh, um, learner was hoping to. Uh, not only describe but engender this uh, idea of empathy here. Um, what are some of the examples of ways that um, he was hoping to use this survey to engender um, uh, empathy or, mm-hmm. or psychological mobility? Yeah, I mean the the types of questions that were that were posed um, uh, would would range from uh, you know can you imagine yourself as the president of Turkey? Can you imagine yourself moving to a big city? Can you imagine yourself moving to the US? Uh, and so a series of exercises in, in uh, what he's, he's thinking of in terms of, of psychic ability, a series of exercises in uh, trying to imagine yourself in these uh, uh, foreign uh, situations. Uh, and uh, he seems to have a hope that just by, by virtue of posing the questions, uh, uh, and uh, one one effect will be to to create this ability to, uh, um, in fact, envision yourself in these improbable uh, scenarios and, and situations. And at the same time, I think that it is important to note that um, you know again these these um, sets of assumptions about uh, about difference and, and and how he interprets the the data itself. Uh, it actually gives a, a gives a more complicated uh, picture of, of sort of what he's trying to do, in the sense that um, when respondents um, re- reply with resistance to these um, uh, types of questions that are supposed to um, measure empathy and your ability to imagine yourself in these situations, uh, the way he interprets the the data uh, also has uh, really sort of. Uh, different implications in terms of 
uh, the the nations and the and the cultures that he's he's writing about. So in another survey, he sees that the the French also, in fact, do not like these types of questions and are hesitant to answer some of these, uh, engage with with some of these surveys. Um, but you know, he he learner is very quick to make the qualification that oh, the French for their reticence, their traditionalisms, and uh, is an acquired intellectual discipline. Uh, whereas the the peasant in the Middle East is is traditional because no other option comes to him naturally and just is just limited in in terms of their uh, ability to to imagine things. So he's he's really uh, quite racialized, really, and uh, learners quite racialized in, in how he's interpreting uh, and and labeling these these types of um, psychic differences as, as he understands them. Right. Uh, we see in that example. Uh, uh, a pretty good um, uh, case of using this construction of the irrational other to uh, stabilize uh, his own identity as a rational Westerner who um, has this knowledge to impart on uh, the sub the subjects and in many ways the objects of his interventions um, uh, by. Uh, twisting and, and reinterpreting um, uh, these findings that French peasants and Turkish peasants aren't all that different, it turns out, uh, and trying to spin it to maintain this kind of developed and underdeveloped um, categorical schema that that um, um, that organizes his worldview uh, in many ways. Um, uh, you, turning now to your um, discussion of highway construction in your chapters on the role of experts in the construction of uh, reports and decision making about um, how to build highways and also uh, how um, local actors can use highway can use these development projects to serve very different political projects than what um, what. American administrators might intend. Um, you say that uh, the arrival of American aid, experts, and machinery to construct highways was expected to instigate modernization in administrative and mecha- mechanical terms by acquainting the new Turkish highway organization and its civil engineers with rational management methods. Um, what were some of the sources of friction that emerged between Marshall Plan administrators, the U.S. Bureau of Public Roads experts, and Turkish engineers? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, there, are, there are two two chapters in the book about about the uh, construction of highways with uh, U.S. aid and, uh, and and expertise, and and this is because um, the, the aid that was given to to the highway project really made up about a third of, of all the aid to Turkey during this the, the, between 1948 and 1959. So it was really loomed quite large and in, uh, in this um, uh, relationship between the two places. And uh, when, when looking closely at the uh, at the highway project, I mean, it's not just a question of um, paving new roads, and, but the fact the fact is that uh, infrastructures also travel with uh, new types of uh, technological technological standards, new types of legal regulations, uh, bureaucratic organization, and the um, uh, on the on the U.S. side, I think uh, you have this uh, in terms of the uh, Bureau of Public uh, Roads. 
uh, you have the American uh, highway experts, the engineers, uh, really primarily interested in, in altering the country's sort of material and, and bureaucratic landscape, in uh, inculcating certain uh, certain approaches to rational methods of record keeping. Uh, they're very interested in um, cultivating ideas about uh, time management and and uh, the maintenance of, of machinery. Uh, there's this image among the uh, American engineers that that uh, the Turkish engineers refuse to quote unquote get their hands dirty, uh, that they have a, a hangover from both their previous uh, German uh, um, uh, um, education, which makes them averse to leaving their their desks. Uh, but they they also describe this at times as a as a Pasha mentality. So they're they're really interested in sort of. Uh, um, and, and administrative organization reorganization uh, that's that's going to remake uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the bureaucratic uh, so the landscape and understandings of approaches to engineering and expertise uh, but uh, the, obviously because the majority of the funding for the project is, is coming especially uh, in the early period from uh, Marshall Plan funds, uh, the, uh, the ECA, which is the Economic uh, Cooperation Administration, responsible for uh, allocating those those funds, uh, has different priorities in mind. Um, I was really struck at one point in, in, in one uh, correspondence. Uh, they, they tell the American engineers that the Turkish economy is their business, their own business. Uh, it's up to the Marshall Plan people to, to take care of it. And so they should have the last say in terms of uh, how how and where the machinery will be uh, uh, distributed, how and where uh, the roads would be built. Uh, they want to bring in uh, American contractors, private contractors, um, whereas the engineers were, were quite resisting resistant to that idea. So, uh, and and from the Turkish perspective, um, you have also, of course, an interest in the highway project. Uh, both in terms of uh, sort of something that will create a, a unified uh, internal market, but also as a uh, state territorial project, given uh, all sorts of concerns about an um, internal uh, uh, colonial project that's ongoing in, in uh, Kurdish-populated areas in the country as well. And so uh, I, I began to think of uh, this highway project as really something that um, brings together uh, these these conflicting at times ideas about uh, political, economic, and and material uh, priorities and and, and uh, expectations. A lot of which also had to do with uh, the measurement and direction of Turkey's post-war economy. It had to do with the nationalist project. It had to also do with uh, approaches to development and modernization at these at these different scales, including um, how how an engineer is is supposed to be conducting themselves. That makes sense. Right. Um, and uh, I, I do want to turn to these broader uh, political projects that highways are supposed to serve in a moment. But I was I was really interested um, how you cite uh, critical development theorists like James Ferguson and Timothy Mitchell and Tanya Murray Lee, who uh, have all written these really interesting books um, about how experts um present their work as technical solutions and in doing so conceal the political implications of their interventions. They depoliticize development as James Ferguson put it. Um, in your case of interactions between us experts and their Turkish counterparts, um, how did the personal and as you put it, corporeal interactions contribute to the fashioning of expert knowledge and practices? And would you say that 
this was an example of, of depoliticizing development. How, how does your work uh, relate to that literature? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question. I mean, um, one of the additional things that was that was quite striking in, in reading through the accounts uh, and, the, and the correspondences between um, the technical uh, experts was also seeing um, sort of how how attuned in a way they were to to uh, questions of, of recognition, questions of intimacy, and, and using quite a, a personal personal language and personal terms as well. So uh, because uh, multiple agencies wanted to take, take credit for the uh, highway project uh, in, in Turkey, there was this, um, uh, you know, um, that there was this almost a, a, a competition in terms of sort of, well, who, who, are the, who are the people that the villagers recognize by name uh, when when they come to their uh, uh, this, uh, sites to uh, create these projects, and so uh, rather than this sort of detached, very technical um, uh, interactions that that also uh, try to very much to to conceal their their political investments, what you had was this claim that you know uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's the it's the engineers themselves who who are recognized by name, who are recognized by face. Uh, who are covered in newspapers, who are uh, celebrated in, in villages. So, um, so that was really uh, kind of a, a, a really interesting uh, vision of expertise that I hadn't uh, really um, encountered in, in, in uh, other other critical accounts of development. So it's not to say necessarily that. Um, uh, so I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that there, there, this this um, takes away this this um, contrasts with this this account of uh, technical development as is always necessarily a uh, depoliticized thing. But there is something about the uh, coexistence of the of the investment and the intimate and the personal and the social alongside these um, uh, more detached technical standards for um, for expertise. Right. And I think that um, the subjects that you're talking about are, are somewhat different from the subjects that um, uh, Ferguson or Mitchell or, or Lee are talking about. When I think about technical experts uh, depoliticizing development, I imagine uh, World Bank experts who, you know, parachute into a country in crisis and tell them how to reorganize their economy and then you know, pop back out after doing a PowerPoint presentation in which they may or may not have the correct country on the slides. I've heard about examples of, 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 of that, uh, that happening. Um, but your, uh, your study is very much about, um, sets of experts who are much more embedded in their, in their local circumstances than, than these sort of, uh, parachuters are. Uh, and I think that that gives a, a different, um, a different lens to understanding um, the role of expert knowledge in the politics of development. Um, so turning now to these macro level political projects that highways uh, uh, contribute to, um, one of the biggest sources of elite conflict in po- post-war Turkish politics was over land reform. And it was um, by, you know, some, some accounts would uh, suggest that um, a, a land reform bill is kind of the last straw that led to the split between um, more 
uh, market oriented, um, business friendly politicians, uh, from the Republican, the incumbent Republican people's party. Uh, and those people would those elites would later form the Democrat party led by the large landowner, Adnan Menderes, who for obvious reasons was against land reform. You, you write that, um, Highway construction uh, displaced plans for land reform as the primary vision for development. Uh, What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I mean, I I think, you know, there I'm um, very cognizant and and trying to engage with um, literature that that, uh, shows just just how important um, different approaches to agricultural and rural development really were uh, to uh, to this broader uh, to these broader co- uh, co- constructions and projects around uh, Cold War modernization and so um, I think in, in many ways you know I think that the classic uh, picture that we get in the immediate post-war period especially is, is that of uh, US experts um, but also, you know, uh, uh, military experts as well as uh, developmental technical experts really being invested in, in propagating the idea of, 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 of land reform. So, we, you know, if you get the U.S. and Japan uh, and, and other places. Um, so um, what, what happens in Turkey, interestingly, is that uh, actually uh, the land reform project, rather than getting implemented, is in a way displaced by uh, the highway project, which ends up standing for a for an alternative vision of, of rural uh, development. And um, this is not to uh, also romanticize the uh, land reform proposal from from 1945, uh, which has its its own uh, sort of uh, limitations and, and all sorts of uh, problematic implications. Uh, but uh, there is, uh, as as you're saying. Um, the sort of the defeat of that bill uh, is is an important turning point in the in the consolidation of, of, of the shift to, to an uh, agricultural model of, of capitalism, uh, and um, is also really important in the coming to power of, of a new party for the first time in the history of the republic, uh, party of, of large large landowners, uh, whose um, whose use of the Marshall Plan funds for uh, building these roads. Uh, distributing uh, agricultural machinery and, and tractors to often uh, a large landowning population really uh, uh, recreates the um, sort of the uh, uh, rural developmental landscape for the country for, for many years to come. Right. And um, you talk about uh, also you mentioned earlier in our conversation and, and in this chapter of the book, you talk about um, the internal colonization of the southeast of Turkey, the Kurdish uh, territories. What role did highway construction play in this project of internal colonization? Uh, there, uh, I think, um, you know, what's what's important to note is uh, rather than um, emerging as a as a completely novel uh, sort of uh, intervention into this this ongoing uh, colonial project, highways I think of as uh, as as yet another another component and a sort of a long standing uh, spatial approach that the that the central Turkish government uh, has towards uh, this this problem of. What, what it sees as a problem of, of, uh, of its its Kurdish uh, populations and 
previous spatial approaches include things like forced migration and resettlement, uh, the construction of, of railways, which uh, Zeynep Kezar in her work uh, does a really wonderful job talking about and the, and the role that railways played in, in guerrilla warfare, moving troops, pacification, uh, territorial colonization. Uh, so uh, I think in a way, uh, highways are, are building on, on, on some of those, those earlier projects. And uh, I mean, I think one of the ways in which um, they're, they're doing this is, is precisely by um, materializing state presence in, in people's lives. Uh, it was striking for me the ways in which uh, highways connected people and, and created mobility for some people while uh, limiting it for others. And so uh, in the East, um, rural roads, roads would not be built. Um, so there was an incentive to actually keep uh, villages uh, apart from, from each other. But there was an uh, effort to actually connect the villages to, to, to uh, city centers. So that seems like an explicit um, uh, and very conscious kind of uh, differential approach in terms of um, uh, creating connections between some and not among others. And it was also interesting to see the ways in which uh, the highway engineers themselves seem to have internalized some of these these um, um, projects and, and commitments themselves. So an imagery of conquest and the highway bulletin uh, was, was something that got repeated a lot. Uh, the, the engineers' own, own model for their organization was, uh, it's not yours if you can't get there. So um, sort of uh, a repetition of this idea that uh, reaching, penetrating, integrating into these otherwise impenetrable uh, um, uh, um, frontier region was an important uh, element of the, of the, of the, sort of the territorial uh, infrastructure project that, that they were part in. Right. Um, uh, this discussion brings to mind the phrase, uh, uh, Michael Mann's famous description of, of state power, infrastructural power, right? This is a very literal manifestation of that concept, isn't it? Um, uh, of how um, highways stood for the projection of central state power into, as you described, these frontier regions that uh, for a long time, not only Turkish, but previously Ottoman administrators had considered kind of a lawless region with uh, lots of brigandage and and um, um, and so highways were uh, uh, one means of bringing order to to this region. And uh, also I th- it made me think about um um, the role that uh, the loss of Ottoman territories played in the mentalities of Turkish state builders and how they were very, very concerned uh, with uh, uh, the territorialization of state power and um, not allowing uh, um, these regions to have autonomy, which they could uh, then use to... Um, undermine the sovereignty of the state as a whole, at least in their minds. Um, uh, I also, uh, in, in um, reading this chapter, I was uh, thinking about how um, how highways were supposed to forge national unity, and the phrase that came to mind was the imagined community, right? How are highways supposed to contribute to the imagining of a Turkish nation in the eyes of of um, some of the planners. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even even sort of the the language of uh, all all 
all weather roads, right? This was a phrase that, that kept popping in the in the in the, uh, in the materials I was finding from at the, at the Department of Highways in Turkey. And I guess the idea is to really connect the, the country for, for 12 months of the year rather than five, as, as might right. have been the case, right, under, under especially sort of wintry conditions in, uh, in, in those um, uh, so-called frontier regions. And so uh, there, is, there is something about, I think, uh, making um, uh, possible the ease of travel, and uh, this expectation, in a way, that uh, you know what Lerner was was interested in, in cultivating in terms of a psychic mobility for uh, imagining an ability to move to another country, imagining yourself as, as capable of social mobility. Uh, in this case, I guess uh, the idea is is to uh, is, is precisely that that language of uh, imagining uh, a, a community. Uh, uh, a shared uh, sort of uh, a shared conception of of, um, um, of readership, uh, listening to uh, uh, a radio program and imagining yourself as as, as uh, the recipient of uh, as, as the as a shared member of a, uh, of an audience. Uh, so all of those examples, I think that that. Um, uh, that, that we think of when we when we think of nation making as as, as this um, uh, as a project, I think the role that that infrastructures are supposed to play is is to shrink distances between uh, cities. It's to uh, both both physical distances, but also I think uh, uh, in the minds of the planners and the statesmen, also to shrink the the mental distances that might actually exist between uh, different regions of the country. Right. And um, I think that a hallmark of uh, so-called traditional life for a lot of these modernization theorists was um, local or very parochial allegiances and mentalities and highways were one way of kind of breaking down these local attachments and and, and connecting people to the larger political unit, which um, for modernization theorists, the, na- the nation was kind of the... Um, natural unit of allegiance that people should have. And, and um, I think that uh, as I was reading this, that's the kind of um, um, process that I think they expected to uh, bring about with highway construction. Um, What were some of the unintended consequences of highway construction? How did highways open up the category of the modern to contestation, appropriation, and redefinition, as you put it? Um, I mean, I think the the best example that I can think of that I write about in the book is 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 a direct uh, uh, outcome of of precisely this this effort to actually uh, make make mobility easier to have people move around uh, is is precisely the the ways in which Azat Zanadulan writes about um, uh, ultimately what ended up happening in uh, uh, in connecting um, Kurdish cities to uh, Western cities was um, ultimately uh, Kurdish students um, regathering in, in, in major cities like in Istanbul uh, and uh, that, that those, those new meetings in a, in a different setting actually politicizing them, right? And, uh, and I think there's something about uh, culminating actually in, in, in 1967, these, these grand uh, things called Eastern meetings uh, um, happened in 
in, in Yarmouker. And so the idea is, is that um, rather than this expectation that um, uh, the ease of movement will, will allow you to um, get assimilated in a, in a major Western city, what ends up happening actually is a, is a highlighting of, of uh, inequality, a highlighting of, of, uh, uh, of, of political injustices, and in fact, uh, roads themselves becoming sort of repurposed and, and doing these Eastern meetings, uh, infrastructure itself becomes an element of, of uh, claim-making, a demand on the central government, uh, but not in the terms that 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 they are they have been previously used, uh, they have been previously mobilized by uh, by the uh, developers, but but in this case to say uh, you know um, give us roads, but not on your terms, on on ours. So that's that's an interesting unintended consequence. Right, and um, uh, that really fits in with um, this idea of, of highways as as a means for um, claim making and um, political contestation. Um, makes me think about uh, the infrastructural turn and other disciplines like anthropology and geography, uh, where you've seen scholars like um, Deborah Cohen uh, in her in her book um, um, the De- the deadly life of uh of of um yeah um where she talks about how uh now highways and and ports are are places that are becoming more and more securitized precisely because um uh groups that want to highlight or 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 fight against what they view as political injustices can use uh, roadblocks or, or other ways of impeding um, um, logistics and, and infrastructure uh, to make claims on the state. Uh, and so um, I think that that uh, uh, is an interested, uh, an interesting unintended consequence of, of, of these uh, construction projects that they open up more ways and new ways for, for claims to be made um, on the state. Um and then uh, I, the last um, case study chapter you have is about the Istanbul Hilton um, and about the the growth of the, the effort to construct a hospitality industry in Turkey in the post-war period. Um, what were the different meanings that American and Turkish actors attached to the Istanbul Hilton and how did these different imaginaries contribute to conflicts over the hotel's style, funding, and location? Yeah, I mean the the uh, Istanbul Hilton is this this iconic building that um, that um, architectural historians have, have especially have, have written about, um, and uh, in this case, sort of it, what was striking to me was again these these different types of visions and, and uh, projects uh, coming into uh, conflict with each other on this on this particular site. Uh, from the perspective of the uh, U.S. government, uh, this was an example of a, of a collaboration with, a, I think, a private corporation to to enact uh, foreign policy agendas. Uh, there was a sense that um, using um, Marshall Plan funds, for instance, for uh, tourism promotion, uh, was an was an easier sell than than direct foreign aid. And in this case, teaming up with a with a corporation like the the Hilton International. Uh, was was uh, desirable for those uh, for those uh, goals. Uh, from the perspective of the uh, the Turkish government, 
uh, it was, I think, an, an interest in sort of enticing uh, foreign foreign investment, private uh, uh, private enterprise, and also um, developing the, the tourism industry where where uh, it had been. It was deemed to be sort of in in need of of, of uh, actual um, uh, development. So. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, when you when I started reading uh, more closely about the conditions under which uh, the hotel was ultimately built, uh, the the site of it had to be expropriated uh, from a, from what was supposed to be a public park, uh, which itself had actually uh, rested on a prior expropriation of the, of, a, uh, of an Armenian cemetery that had been uh, uh, nearby. Uh, and so uh, it was interesting to see uh, the ways in which sort of this 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 particular collaboration between the U.S. government, the Turkish government, and this, this private corporation was actually also really deeply entangled with with uh, domestic histories of of dispossession, also. Right, and um, I think that uh, to this day, and and. Um, political science and then mainstream development studies, um, economic modernization, uh, uh, just ignores this uh, role that dispossession plays in the and the politics of of, of space uh, involved in in modernization projects um, uh, and what kinds of resistance that that can elicit. That this resistance is often deemed. Uh, traditional or pre-modern when in fact it's uh um pushing back against what people see as um an unjust usurpation by the state and in this case um uh uh turkish and american actors uh uh public and private came together to privatize this public space um that itself was uh, uh, dispossessed from, in the course of trying to homogenize the Turkish population and erase uh, um, the multiple cultures that had lived side by side in Istanbul during the Ottoman period. Um, uh, I thought that that's a really interesting uh, um, example of this uh, overlooked politics of space. Um, uh, and especially in light of Gezi Park, it's it's also interesting because the Gezi Park protests were were spurred by uh, um, maybe a somewhat similar um, attempt to build a shopping mall in a in a public park, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was a a really fascinating book, and and in uh, the conclusion, um, I want to. Uh, ask you um so some political scientists might regard this kind of examination of the disciplinary history as unhelpful navel gazing that extracts from actually going out into the world and producing research why should political scientists take an uh, an interest in the history of their discipline you say that uh we shouldn't just leave this to the the intellectual historians to write about this stuff um what can histories like the your book uh tell us about our discipline and and how should it make us rethink what we're doing uh, as political scientists thank you that's a, a great great question um i think um uh the i, I you know earlier uh, we had talked a little bit about sort of um the, the ways in which 
uh, we can name, we can look at certain other disciplines like anthropology or, or, or history, uh, which which have done better jobs, I think, in a way, in terms of sort of um, cultivating maybe a, a more self-reflexive, critical attitude towards their, their own histories. And um, this is not entirely lacking, I don't think, in, in political science. Just in the past couple of years, books by uh, Jessica Blatt, Robert Vitalis, Michael Henshard, uh, have have come out uh, interrogating uh, um, uh, all sorts of uh, aspects of um, uh, the subfields of IR uh, compared to politics, American politics uh, more broadly, and especially the the history of the of the discipline in terms of its entanglements with with all sorts of uh, racist and white supremacist projects as well. And so um, I think it's it's important to do this work and I'm, I'm happy that that uh, a lot of people are doing this work uh, and uh, in the case of the more specific history of the discipline that i look at uh, which is the history of, of modernization theory uh, i think um, it can be helpful because although we do tend to uh, dismiss it as a as an outdated um uh, idea, you know, of course, in our in our uh, field seminars, you know, we kind of gloss over this and we say, yes, of course, it was ethnocentric. It was it generalized too much, and uh, you know, um, uh, it was it was more normative. It upheld these these Western institutions as ideal types and had all sorts of assumptions. But it does seem to me that certain certain um, uh, certain presuppositions of this this theory actually do continue to direct uh, some of our, uh, our our projects, our research projects. Uh, I think modernization theory is important because um, recovering this history is important precisely because it helps us come to terms with the uh, political implications of of our research methods and projects. Uh, precisely in the way that, that other disciplines have, have come to terms with the, with the political implications of their own, own histories. Um, and even, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, and I think that um, this ethnocentrism and this, um, um, you know, holding up uh, what is often a very idealized uh, understanding uh, um, of U.S. history and Western European history as the model or the benchmark to compare other societies to. Um, I think that that's still very common in in political science research and still a very big problem in our discipline. Um, and so I think that uh, um, studies like some of the ones that you mentioned, especially uh, Robert Vitalis's book uh, "White World Order: Black Power Politics," had a huge uh, effect on me because it made me think about all these ways in which um, uh, what we kind of think of as uh, these problems of the past have have had lasting influences on the way, on the theories that we produce, on the methods that we use to study politics, like this liber- laboratory laboratorization phenomenon. Uh, that's a, a hard word to, to twist my tongue around. Um, um, but that's still, you know, a very common approach to, to, uh, studying other societies. And, uh, um, I think that, uh, books like this are really important for, for people to read. Um, and I think that, uh, a big thing that, that we need to challenge in the discipline is this idea of scientific 
progress that we uh sure you know we can look back at all these mistakes that modernization theorists made and uh we can read early things like um um Lipset's economic development and democracy article which uh, had about as much statistical um reliability as cave drawings uh and yet um we can you know we can look back on that and scoff but uh we need to really do some soul searching about how these um um the structure the the institutional structures that create this need for research that um can be used to advance u.s foreign policy objectives and uh to legitimize uh u.s political projects internationally um how these uh uh um how these uh, basically the standpoint that a lot of scholars of political science come from socially of being a lot of us are middle-class people. Most of us are white and, uh, how that shapes our, our understanding of the world and our understanding of history and our understanding of our own society. And basically to, to, to make us think more closely about maybe we're not so different from the, the people that you talk about, the Daniel learners and, and the Dinkor Rostos. I can, you know, I can think of a few political scientists who are the Daniel learners of our time, but I won't get into that necessarily here. But um, uh, these, these uh, big institutional structures and, and social standpoint biases are still, are still with us in our discipline. And that's why it's important to, uh, investigate the history of our discipline and to to think about how um, these deep-seated biases are, are built into our research and into um, the projects that we involve ourselves in. Um, okay, on that note, uh, Begum, thank you so much for joining me. This was a, a very fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, the book is Hotels and Highways, The Construction of Modernization Theory in Cold War Turkey. Uh, it's from Stanford University Press. It came out in 2018. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has been uh, the World Affairs Podcast from the New Books Network. Uh, goodbye.